Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is episode 16 and this is part 3 of our ENT emergency series with Mr Jerry McGarry. So let's just jump right back in. Um, so next um, is is a presumed tonsillitis. So younger person, kind of early 20s, they've got severe throat pain. Um, they've had tonsillitis before and they're, they're kind of struggling to swallow a little bit. Um, what What's your thoughts when you approach a tonsillitis patient? So again, tonsillitis is a very easy diagnosis. Okay, so one of the problems is that not every sore throat is a tonsillitis. Tonsillitis is a pretty characteristic history. The patient will be severely unwell. They'll be fevered. They'll be um, they'll be having difficulty opening their mouth. They'll have trismus. They'll probably be dehydrated. They'll have uh, smelly breath because they've not been eating and drinking. Um, and so when you look in, you will see unhealthy, probably coated with exudate tonsils. So it's, it's not rocket science. It's an easy diagnosis. And if the patient has a sore throat and doesn't have that, then they probably don't have tonsillitis. So it's as simple as that. What diagnostic tests are required? Does it matter if we diagnose strep throat? Um, you know, it probably mattered more in the past. But the, nowadays, do, does it matter? No, or, or, no. So, so we don't need swabs? No. We don't need well, you're not going to get the result of the swab anyway until you've decided what you're doing with the patient. So uh, I'm not saying don't swab their throat, but... Um, you're not going to make your immediate treatment decision on the basis of that because you're not got instantaneous microbiology reporting. Um, so I think it's all to do with the history. It's all to do with the patient's appearance. Um, now, a patient who has um, uh, tonsillitis, a bit of fever, who's managing to eat and drink, uh, who's at home with a carer or living with a family, can probably go home and take their antibiotics. The patient that we often will admit, and we do admit, quite a lot of patients with tonsillitis, it's one of our commoner uh, emergency admissions, is the patient who hasn't been able to take the antibiotic that the GP gave them because they can't swallow. And because they can't swallow, they're dehydrated now. And because they're dehydrated, they're s- seriously unwell. These people come in and we can turn them around usually in 24 hours. We give them IV fluids. We give them a couple of doses of IV antibiotics. And then they'll often go home within 24, 48 hours to take their oral antibiotics. But it's that business about not being able to eat and drink that allows them to get dehydrated and become unwell. And so that's, you should have your antennae out for the unwell-looking patient. They're the ones that need intervention. And who needs antibiotics? Presuming it's not classic like what you've described, mm. and I've had a very recent experience mm. with my wife, mm-hmm. um, who probably needed antibiotics, yeah. and I kept doing my doctor, my modern doctor yep. thing of it's probably viral, you know, yep. let's see how it goes. Didn't seem to have a lot of exit, maybe one or two little spots, this is my wife, Um she was very sore, but was able to eat and drink, albeit with with a lot of pain, but was keeping herself hydrated, didn't look toxic, didn't seem to have a lot of fever. Mm-hmm. So I says, oh, it's probably viral, probably viral, probably viral. And then a week down the line, um, she was still in a lot of pain and getting worse. She got antibiotics, and within 24 hours, she was getting significantly better. Um, when you're approaching patients who don't have the classic kind of uh, appearance of bacterial tonsillitis, any indicators that would sway you whether to give them or to hold off, or what's your thoughts? 
So the differential diagnosis really is between tonsillitis and pharyngitis. And pharyngitis is inflammation of the pharynx, which can be viral, but it can also be due to uh, chemical irritants, um, uh, smoking and all the rest of it. It's quite an easy distinction to make between the tonsillitis patient uh, and the pharyngitis patient. People with pharyngitis, they don't need antibiotics, but they don't have fever they tend to have a sore throat which lasts for quite a long time but doesn't stop them eating. It tends to not stop them going to work either. They come up with this constant grumbling sore throat. The tonsillitis patient, a good one tonsillitis, they don't go to work, they don't go to school, you're properly unwell. So I would say in the case of your wife, as you described, if she wasn't getting better within 48 hours, um, then she, she needed antibiotics. There's a, the big problem with withholding antibiotics now, we've, I think the pendulum has swung too far. Um, people with tonsillitis, in my opinion, bacterial tonsillitis, they need antibiotics. People with sore throats, not all of them need antibiotics. And that's the problem. We need to distinguish who are the real deal and who are pharyngitis. And a lot of patients who have tonsillitis are labelled as pharyngitis, they're not given antibiotics, and we have seen an increase in admissions with parapharyngeal abscesses. Um, they are, I think, more common now. We've also, in other infective phenomena, seen increase in patients with uh, orbital cellulitis and complications of sinusitis, because it's very difficult uh, now to get a prescription of antibiotic. Um, uh, so I think we just need to be careful. If the patient's febrile, and, and it looks like a tonsillitis, I would, I would prescribe them antibiotic. What about glandular fever? How, how, can, you, how can you differentiate? Or, or what would you do if, if they were the right demographic and, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and presented in a similar fashion? What? So, yeah, so glad that's, a, that's a good question as well. I mean, so the first thing I would say, you don't differentiate. So uh, tonsillitis and glandular fever is still tonsillitis, um, and we see a lot of it. It looks a wee bit different. Usually, okay, there's a, the demographics that you've described, but very often they've got really quite marked lymphoid hyperplasia of their tonsils, and some of them can actually have airway problems. So I think if you've got a tonsillitis where someone looks severely dehydrated, they can hardly open their mouth, and, and you think there's a bit of stertor, and you know their airway is maybe a wee bit compromised, and you look in and there are these massive tonsils, then that, we would think, may well point you towards thinking about glandular fever. I don't know what it is. It's maybe a, some sort of subliminal information that we're, I'm picking up. But when I go around the ward round, I can say this is a glandular fever tonsillitis. And it's probably just those things that we've described. The right type of patient, a bit more enlargement of the tonsils than you would normally expect, a wee bit of the muffled speech. Um, of course, other indicators is that they often have an abnormal LFTs. A uh, wee flicker of the transaminases. And so we routinely will do uh, glandular fever slide tests in these patients. Anything else symptom-wise in terms of fever, lymphadenopathy, exudate appearance? Anything else of those kind of appearances that, that would sway you one way or the other, typically? Yeah, they, they often have a bit more disproportionate malaise and are just a bit less... Well, this, this is the type of patient when you go into the cubicle to see them in A&E, they're actually dozing. Um, you have to 
you wake them up a wee bit and they sort of slurred speech and, and things. They're more systemically unwell. They don't have the same raging fever that the others, um, uh, other bacterial tonsillitis have. But I mean, as, you know, it can, they can masquerade one as the other. It doesn't really matter a great deal because the treatment's the same. Um, you're still going to give them penicillin. You're just not going to give them ampicillin. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's it's an interesting one, but I wouldn't get hung up on it. It doesn't make a big difference clinically, really, for us. Yeah. Um, I was reading something recently about um, steroids. Not not convincing evidence, but some mm. people have suggested you, you could give steroids for, for tonsillitis. Any thoughts on that? Any clear evidence or any indications? Yeah, there, there's... Um there's a, certainly a recent trend for people to get a bolus dose of steroid. Now, the one place that is indicated, I think, is in the glandular fever patients who have a, a lot of lymphoid hyperplasia and their airway might even be questionable. We often give them a bolus of steroids. But I've, I've noted that a lot of our uh, registrars are now giving uh, the peritonsillar abscesses and severe tonsillitis a blast of steroid to see if it will shorten the, the, the symptoms and uh, speed the recovery. Again, I'm not entirely sure how robust the evidence is, but again, it's probably not a great deal of risk in, in doing so. Okay. And in terms of the, the hyperplasia, um, is it ever possible or have you ever seen airway obstruction? I mean, I've, I've yeah. seen some really yeah. big tonsils that look like they're nearly obstructing, yeah. but they're okay. They're they're breathing and they seem to do okay. But can they or have they Well, ever? they can. I mean, I, I don't do any pediatric practice because of my, my specialist uh, practice, but... Um, I remember in my training doing emergency tonsillectomies for uh, children who were basically uh, obstructed. So yes is the answer to that, and that's the type of patient you would give a bolus of steroid and, and, and get ENT quickly. Something that I would maybe mention that you haven't touched on is beware the older patient, and by that I mean even middle-aged patient, with a unilateral tonsillitis. Um, we have quite a high prevalence of uh, oropharyngeal carcinoma in, in the community. Um, and some of these patients present with uh, pharyngeal pain. It may lateralize to, to one side. And when you look in, the tonsil looks a bit big. And some of these patients have been treated as a tonsillitis when in fact they're a carcinoma of the tonsil. So anyone who I see on the ward on my take week, if you like, who has tonsillitis, which is asymmetric, I review them in my clinic once the dust has settled to make sure that this isn't a, a cancer. Um, and sometimes we have to take the tonsil out for that. I'd say unilateral must be quite rare. I would never have thought of infective tonsillitis being unilateral, but I guess it can in rare cases, but, but be suspicious is what you're saying. Be suspicious, and it's not that rare. Um, as I say, every we do what we call a hot week where we, we take the calls for, at, the, at the main hospital for a week, and we'll have two or three most hot weeks which are, are lateralising. Because, of course, people often will confuse them with peritonsillar abscess, which is a sore throat that lateralises. Um, so the the, the the older or middle-aged patient with a quinsy, unless it's a definite quinsy and you get pus out of it, uh, needs reviewed. Um, is there anything else that A&E staff could do for a quinsy, or is it generally fluids, antibiotics, and refer? Well, although we give them fluids and antibiotics and, and you refer them on, the... the, the 
the definitive management of the quinsy is to drain it like any other abscess. And um, it's actually quite a nice trick to learn. And, and if I was an A&E doctor, I might uh, go along and ask my friendly local ENT surgeon to show me how to drain a quinsy. Um, it's easy, easily done. We used to do it with a knife. Most people do it now with a, a white needle on, on a 20ml syringe. Um, and it's quite remarkable how how quickly the patients will get better once the Quincy has been drained. So if you learn how to to drain a Quincy, that would be a, a real a real boon. Now we're not suggesting anyone goes and tries this without appropriate training, but say that you did it. Um, okay to discharge, satisfactory drainage. Do they need follow up? Um, they don't necessarily need follow-up, but that, again, is based on their history. Um, now, it, we're, we're an imaginary scenario here is you're an accident emergency, you've learned how to do this, you see a patient, they've got a quinsy, you stick a needle in and you get 8 mLs of pus in your syringe and uh, it starts to drain. If that patient has got support at home and is managing to drink fluids, they could go home on antibiotics and is li- are likely to... Um, likely to improve quite quickly. There is a tendency for us to add metronidazole to the antibiotic prescription when there's a quinsy, um, and that, that seems a reasonable thing to add to it. So they don't necessarily need admitted if they drain. Um, so what we'll often do with our patients in the, the, the treatment room uh, in the ENT ward is that they'll come in, they've got a quinsy, we'll stick a bag of fluid up, rehydrate them, drain the quinsy, sit them in the, the, the day room, for a, a few hours, review them. If they're feeling better, they can go off home. Um, so they don't all get admitted to stay in. So I was wanting to ask you about tracheostomies, if that's okay. It's something that gets my heart racing a little bit. I, I guess we just don't see a lot of them. Um, so I was wondering, what, do you have any tips or tricks or pearls when you approach a tracheostomy patient in the emergency department? So so there's there's two types of tracheostomy. Um Essentially, there are end and side. So we need to think of the trachea as a, as a tube, uh, which it is, of course. And then you could make a hole in the side of that and, and, and put a tube in. And that's quite often what we do in temporary tracheostomies. It means that the patient still has a larynx and all the rest of it. And then there's the laryngectomy patient who has ha- has what we call an end tracheostomy. Um, so they're, they're, they're different in, in the way you approach them. Um, so if the patient has a, a tracheostomy tube uh, in a, a side tracheostomy, if you like, um, that's a foreign body in their airway, and these tubes can become blocked. And uh, the paradoxical thing is that the best thing you can do for a patient like that who has a blocked tube, perhaps due to secretions or whatever, is to take the thing out. Um, and that's probably something that people feel quite afraid of doing because they see this tube as as this is what's keeping the patient alive, it's maintaining their airway, but in fact that might be the problem. So now when we put in a temporary tracheostomy, a side tracheostomy, we put in double lumen tubes and the inner lumen can be pulled out without taking the whole tube out. But sometimes you might have to do what might seem to you to be the unthinkable. If you've got someone who's having breathing problems and they've got a trachea, it might be that trachea that's a problem and you need to take the tube out and then suction around. The laryngectomy patient, of course, is a completely different 
scenario. Uh, that's an end tracheostome. It's a permanent tracheostome. Uh, and very often they don't need a tube. They don't have a tube in. Uh, and these patients can sometimes present to A&E with mucus plug obstructions. Um, because they don't have a larynx, they breathe exclusively through their stoma. And that means that they're disconnected from their nose. So the air is unfiltered, unhumidified, um, and it's cold air, it's not warmed. All these things that the nose does for our breathing are not there in a the laryngectomy patient. So they get dry, cold, crusty air into their trachea. So they end up with crusts and scabs in their trachea, which if not dealt with, can, can block their stoma. So if you've got a laryngectomy patient who's having tracheostomy problems, you really need to look around the corner and see what's there. And sometimes it's a pair of forceps to pull out a, a big chunk of crusted secretion, uh, uh, which will, will do the job in that patient. Okay, we're down to our last patient. Um, we've got a dramatic one, a neck stabbing. Mm. You'll probably see that a bit more often in, in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, so... Your approach to, to a neck stabbing patient, I guess there's the ABC, of course. Let's say this patient, ABC is fine, um, but they've got a decent size wound in their neck. What, 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 sh- what, what do you look out for? What, what, what are your steps which guide your plan from here? Yeah. So obviously, um, neck stabbings can be potentially very serious, um, or sometimes they're, they're quite superficial. Um, so you'll be guided by the history. How, how much blood loss have we got here? Was this, was this the real deal? Is there an expanding hematoma? Uh, can you feel pulses in the neck? Is a patient able to speak? Um, and then what we do uh, is, is gently examine the wound to see whether or not it's, some are not even through platysma. So is it through platysma? Is it in, in one of the more dangerous areas of the neck? And that sounds a bit daft because all areas are dangerous, but, you know, is it right overlying the medial border of sternomastoid? Is it, is it in the supraclavicular region? Because that, that, you know, again, can end up with a penetrating injury down into the root of the neck where there's a lot of serious plumbing. Um, so generally speaking, the patient will be awake. They'll be able to give you some indication of what it was that they were stabbed with. If they're vital signs are such that there's not an immediate run to theatre. A gentle examination of the wound. Platysma's intact, you're on a winner. Platysma's not intact, hmm, then I wouldn't go exploring it any further. They need to they need to be seen by ENT. If you've got time on your side, you can do CT angios and things like that before going to theatre. But a quite a high proportion of neck stabbings end up going to theatre for exploration. Over the years, I've seen very many of these and uh, I tend to err on the safe side and will more often explore the neck stabbing in theatre uh, rather than just observe. And that's based on the fact that I've seen patients who have stopped bleeding um, and seem stable. And then when the clot lyses, then they're on a ward at this point, they're not in a resus bay, and they, they start bleeding. So um, I think when in doubt, explore. Okay, thank you very much. That's our shift ended. Um, <laughs> nothing but ENT, which was lucky. Lucky for me. Lucky yeah. for you, yeah. Lucky I had you here. Um, so it just, we, we sometimes ask our audience for, for questions, if that's okay. So yeah. I've just got a few wee ones to finish with, if you don't yeah. mind. Um, so Jennifer McGrory 
asks, uh, you have led some pioneering surgical techniques in sinus surgery. What are the keys to success in pushing forward new surgical techniques? And what were the barriers and how did you overcome these? And I think she means cynics or people sceptical. How did you yeah. overcome those? Um, well, that, that's an interesting question. Um, somebody obviously put her up to it. But I, I, I have been very fortunate in being in, in, in the, the vanguard, if you like, of, of, of some new types of exciting new types of surgery. Um, and very often find myself uh, over the years proposing a, a non-standard treatment uh, for a patient um, and meeting a bit of resistance. It's not necessarily f on the basis of pe people being cynical, but if you have a treatment which everyone does uh, and someone's proposing something new or different, then you have to prove it. And that's that's how I approached it. Uh, I, 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 I audited everything and still audit everything I do. And when we reach a critical point, I publish and I published the results of my endoscopic tumour surgery uh, and so on. And it's been quite gratifying for me to have... I mean, I've been a consultant now for 23 years in this hospital, um, about 30 years in ENT, um, and I have seen major changes in the way we approach certain tumours. And I think the answer is uh, don't be cavalier, don't get on a, a, a hobby horse, just do it right. And by that I mean record everything, audit everything. If it's not working, don't stick with it. Change. And eventually you'll get there. Um, I mean, you've touched on something now. I'm just going to tell you that when I started in ENT, uh, sinonasal malignancies, tumours of the nose and paranasal sinuses, which are quite uncommon, um, had a 30% five-year survival with radical treatment. Um, we're just about to publish my series of endoscopic tumour management, taking these tumours out using telescopes and minimal access techniques. And I nearly fell off my chair when we, we analysed the results, and the five-year survival for that group was 70%. So in, in my career, I've seen it go from 30% to 70%, and the reasons for that are that we now have precise endoscopic surgical techniques which don't mutilate patients to the same extent and um, are now actually uh, accepted as, as, as the way to go. Whereas when I started doing this uh, in this part of the world, there was some initial resistance. Um, James Mattis asks, what are the keys to best work-life balance? And how do you, this must be two, I think two questions. How do you prepare for long ENT cases, food, bladder, meditation or whatever well he obviously doesn't know me talking about <laughs> work life balance I, I don't think I've ever managed to uh, work is my life and, and my life is work but it's not the only thing I do um, I don't know I think uh, one advice, bit of advice I'd give to any young doctor starting off is have something else that, that, that absorbs you and I know that you know a lot of people are into their triathlon and their sports and things like that. I think it's important that you've got some other outlet. Uh, and in terms of um, 
preparing for long cases, um, I think try and keep yourself fit and healthy. Um, and I, I, I was a bit of a fanatic on that for years, and as a result, I think I've ruined my skeleton gradually over the years, and all the cartilage is worn out of all my joints. But I think it did. I think if you're if you're fit and well, um, then you'll 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 do better in, in theatre. Surgery is an athletic pursuit, as I'm sure a, a busy shift in A&E is as well. So, so yeah. looking after yourself yeah. will help. And last question is is my question, which I ask everyone, if that's okay. And that is, if if I could bring you back in time to meet mm. your junior self starting mm. out 30-something 30, 30 years ago, mm. uh, what have you gained in your experience that you would pass on to yourself starting out? What would, what, what would be a value to them starting their career? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. It's, uh, it almost uh, goes into the personal domain, doesn't it? I think I'd tell myself... Um, relax a bit more you're sorted um you don't need to be quite so full on i think i was i was quite um full on in my early part of career and uh it was interesting one of my sons sort of let me know about this when when i asked him if he wanted to go into medicine and he says oh i'm not doing that i said but you don't it's not all blood and guts he says i'm not doing what you do i said well it's not all blood and guts there's lots of different things in medicine he says no no i don't mean that he says i'm i'm not getting up before everybody else does and coming in after everybody else does <laughs> and, and working all night in the study i'm not doing that and i said i don't do that pause <laughs> pause yeah. oh, hold on. so i think the advice would be you know, ease up a wee bit have another interest that that absorbs you and the other thing I would say is, you know, don't ease up too much because I've had a whale of a time. I've been very fortunate and I've enjoyed just about every minute of my career. I, I've, I've travelled the world talking about what I do, which is, uh, as you probably know, I, I like talking about what I do. And I think that would be a piece of advice I would give any doctor is if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Find something else. If you don't like your work, you'll not do it well. So I think pick a specialty that uh, fires you up and and then get in amongst it. Dr McGarry, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, Thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate that. Um, Thanks for asking me to come along and I hope uh, some of your listeners have found it useful. I bet they will have. Thank you very much. Take care now. So many, many thanks to Mr Jerry McGarry. Um, There was so much great information in that interview that we were able to split it into three great episodes and I think my main take-home points for this episode are number one with regards to tonsillitis the ENT services would be seeing a rise in prevalence of parapharyngeal abscesses so Mr McGarry would say that if there's classic symptoms of fever, trismus, difficulty swallowing and large tonsils with exudate then give antibiotics if less classic but large infected looking tonsils and not improving after 48 hours, then give antibiotics. Number two, in terms of tracheostomies, for those that don't look after them that often, they can be a little bit nerve-wracking when we see a tracheostomy patient with some difficulty in breathing. So we need to remember that although the tracheostomy tube seems like a lifeline, it can sometimes be the problem. And we've put in the show notes a great uh, little stepwise approach Um, created by the National Tracheostomy Safety Project and I think it's worth looking at to get comfortable with the steps of dealing with these situations. Number three, with regards to neck stabbings, consider the location. Worrisome locations would be the medial border of sternocleidomastoid and also the supraclavicular region. 
You should estimate how much blood loss there's been. Is there an expanding hematoma? Can you feel pulses? And can the patient speak and swallow? Next, gently explore, looking to see if platysma has been breached. If so unstable, then CT angio would be the next best option. If it's breached and the patient is not stable, then they may require emergency exploration. And number four, in terms of life and career advice, Mr. McGarry recommends we all keep fit and that we relax a little bit in our careers. Don't get too stressed about everything, particularly early on in your career, but equally find something that enthuses you, gets you passionate, and then give it your everything. So please visit our website at stmungos-ed.com where we have lots of educational resources as well as the show notes that accompany each episode where you'll find summaries of all the learning points plus links to lots of other additional information which you'll find useful. Many, many thanks again to Mr. Jerry McGarry for his time and all his pearls of wisdom. Many thanks to you for listening and take care. <laughs>